eruption was so big, it was at least 2,800 times bigger than Mount St. Helens. They didn't understand that they were perfectly normal, scientifically explainable events that uh, were really the Earth was just shaping itself over and making a few adjustments here and there. They thought that those were the gods and that those gods had to be appeased. Now that sort of stuff, that's not going on nowadays. I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) We can't focus on preventing this. What has to be focused on is surviving. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. Hello there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is June 8th, 2008. Thank you very much for your patience last week as we had to postpone the show. My voice was completely gone, and it is sufficiently recovered enough to press onward here with the program. So let's rock and roll. This week's episode goes off the beaten esoteric path as we're going to examine the world of supervolcanoes and calderas with Marie Jones. Longtime BOA Audio listeners will remember Marie Jones from her appearance last season on BOA Audio Season 2. This time around, we're going to be talking about the book that she co-wrote with her dad, titled Supervolcano. Fascinating stuff. Definitely some alt-science material here on the program, as I said, off the beaten esoteric path. Marie is going to give us a sweeping overview of what calderas are and where they can be found. The infamous Toba eruption of 75,000 years ago, the Yellowstone caldera that has many in esoterica buzzing, and which area poses the most danger should a supervolcano erupt. We're also going to war game a caldera eruption to find out how extensive the damage would be and how, if at all, people can prepare for such an event. In addition to all that, we're going to have some bonus discussion on women in esoterica and the rise of the ghost hunting fad, some big picture analysis of the esoteric world there with one of the fastest rising and most respected researchers in the paranormal world today, Marie Jones. It's a pleasure to have her back on the program, and I think you're really going to dig this discussion on supervolcanoes. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Marie Jones, let me give you a little bit of background on her. Marie D. Jones has been involved with the paranormal in one way or another for most of her life, which led to a fascination with quantum physics and the writing of her book, Science, How New Discoveries in Quantum Physics and New Science May Explain the Existence of Paranormal Phenomena. Marie is also a New Thought metaphysics minister and spiritual counselor. She holds a master's degree in metaphysical studies, has also studied Wicca, goddess traditions, mythology, and comparative religion. She worked as a field investigator for MUFON in Los Angeles and San Diego in the 1980s and 90s. Marie is a widely published author. Her book, Looking for God in All the Wrong Places, was chosen as the best spiritual religious book of 2003 by the popular book review website RebeccasReads.com, and the book made the top 10 of 2003 list at MyShelf.com. She has also co-authored over three dozen inspirational books for publications international slash new seasons. 
and her essays, articles, and stories have appeared in a number of anthology series. She now resides in San Marcos, California, where she continues her pursuit for knowledge of both natural and the supernatural. Her website is www.mariedjones.com, M-A-R-I-E-D-J-O-N-E-S dot com. Check it out. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on May 5th, 2008. Marie Jones talking about Super Volcano on BOA Audio Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. We have a very cool guest here coming back to the show. She was on during Season 2, almost the exact same time of year, exact number episode, a couple episodes later this time, but I'm excited to bring her back. I have a tremendous amount of respect for our guest here. Uh, she's one of the preeminent women in the field of the paranormal world. She obviously does a lot of other stuff, and she's branched out into uh, almost as mainstream as you can get and still have one foot in the paranormal, I guess you could say, here with this new book, which she's co-written with her dad. Um, before we plug that, of course, she's the author of the outstanding book, Science, spelled with a P, P-S-I-E-N-C-E. That's what we were talking about last year. And this year, we're going to be talking about Super Volcano, the catastrophic event that changed the course of human history. She co-wrote it with her dad, Dr. John Savino, Ph.D. Our guest is coming back to Ben All of America Audio for a second appearance here, Marie D. Jones. Marie, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure. Well, it's great to have you back. Like I said, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for you. You're one of the preeminent women in the field, one of the preeminent researchers, to be honest with you, in the well, whole thank field. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, it's great to have you back. I like your grounded sense of reality and, and uh, you know, your hard science affinity uh, when it comes to this kind of paranormal stuff. And we need more people like that and, and less people uh, hooting and hollering. Oh, I totally agree. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it is getting to be... A little much to take. We'll talk about that later. Though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, before we, we start talking about Super Volcano, you know, let's bring folks up to speed on who Marie D. Jones is, of course. Uh, you can find out more on her at mariedjones.com. That's the website. But for folks who foolishly did not hear uh, our last interview, why don't you give them a little bit of a bio background, you know, who are you and how did you get into all this stuff? <laughs> who am I, the eternal question? Uh, well, I was born in the Northeast, and I've been writing since I was a little girl, and I've also been interested in the paranormal since I was, oh, God. I mean, I think I came out of the womb looking for, for mysteries and trying to solve unknown mysteries. But I um, started out writing fiction and screenplays and, and reviews, and I moved into nonfiction fairly recently. And for some reason, you know, I, I've been successful at it. I've written four books right now, just uh, getting ready to sign for a fifth and sixth book. And uh, the daughter of a scientist, my mom was a creative artist, so I got the best of both worlds growing up. And I'm a single mom, and I live in San Marcos, California, and there's a lot I left out, but I don't think people really need to know. <laughs> <laughs> or they can email me, and I'll, I'll tell them the personal stuff. <laughs> there you go. When we last left off, you were teasing us on Super Volcano. It was just about to come out, and of course it came out, um, I think it came out in the fall time, right? It did, yeah, yeah. August. So yeah. what led you to look into the Super Volcano story and the story of the calderas and Toba and, you know, all that stuff, Yellowstone? What made you look into that? Well, you know, it's whenever I write a book, it's because I get really – I hear about something or I'm researching something and I get so excited that I have to share it with everybody else. That's how I write books. Mm -hmm. 
And my dad and I, we had been approached by my publisher to do a sci- – I had actually been approached to do a real hard science book. And I said, well, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm a writer and I have a journalist background. And I said, why don't I bring my dad in on something? He's a, a geophysicist and he's got a background in seismology, volcanology, and earthquakes are his specialty. But we didn't want to do just what are volcanoes. I mean, everybody has seen these documentaries about volcanoes. That's no big deal. And, you know, my dad, I had actually seen a a pseudo-documentary on the BBC called Super Volcano. I had no idea they even existed. And I mentioned it to my dad, and he started telling me the story of this one in particular called Toba that erupted in Sumatra in Indonesia about 74,000 years ago. And the story just blew me away. I thought, why has nobody written about this? Uh, Not only is this an amazing super eruption that literally changed our environment and our climate for years, but it has a a genetic link that literally changed humanity itself, and we are still bearing the brunt of those changes. So that's really what got – and then when I was researching super volcanoes, I thought, oh, my God, these things are are amazing. God forbid one ever goes because we're all in big trouble. Yeah, yeah. Just from just from my memory of reading science and reading this book, I can tell you're a hardcore researcher. So you must have been just digging all this. I stuff. love research, and I can get really bogged down in just researching. And at, at some point, you know, you do have a contract with a deadline, <laughs> and so at some point, you actually have to write the book. <laughs> but yeah, I just you know I had all these books on volcanoes and genetics and all kinds of stuff, and it was like, wow, this. Nobody knows what super volcanoes are. This is amazing. One of the cool things, I guess, about the book is that you did write it with your dad, and, and we've, yeah. we've seen a lot of you know husband and wife pairings, but not too many father and daughter pairings writing a book in in this genre and you know in the paranormal field. Even though this is sort of not even that paranormal, it's more uh, hard science. But I uh, call it yeah, you know, I what, call it para para science maybe. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, what was it like working with your dad? You know, what was that sort of experience like? Because, uh, you know, some people some people who would have to write a, a book with their dad or even work on a project with their dad, I think, you know, they'd be pulling their hair out. So that must have gone smoothly for you, though. It did. Um, there were some exceptions in, in mainly that, you know, we had decided early on that I would handle um, the genetics, the um, volcanoes in the past, the re- uh, history and religion. I would handle certain chapters. I uh, preparedness, and that my dad would handle the real technical, hard, scientific and statistical stuff. So it concerned me, are these going to gel when we put them together? Because my dad is a widely published, uh, you know, in the scientific world, he's written a lot of papers that have been published in scientific journals. And it was really cool because he is a great writer. He's creative. He's funny. You know, I told him, I'm, I write humor. I, I could be writing about Armageddon. I'm going to find something funny about it. And he managed to find some humor, even in this, you know, amazingly uh, apocalyptic subject matter of supervolcanoes. The stress comes from just, you know, having to go back and forth under a deadline and the pressure of, especially for my dad, because he'd never done it before. And I think, you know, he probably felt the pressure, but I think he liked it enough because he keeps asking me when we're going to write something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the go. first time I've written with a partner. I actually write screenplays. I have a screenwriting partner. But that was the first book I ever wrote, and I'm actually writing a book now with Larry Flaxman, mm-hmm. who you interviewed from our past. And, you know, it's a paranormal book. 
it's something new for me. I, I'm a real lone wolf, and I'm used to flying solo. But it's a fun experience to have two heads instead of one. Yeah, it's a different scenario when you're collaborating like that, but it sounds it like is. you had a good time. And it really helps, too, if you're writing something where you know the other person can really bring a lot to the table that you can't. You know, like with my dad, I, I understand geophysics and seismology. I grew up on it, but I can't get into it the way he can. I mean, he can fire off statistics and dates and events off the top of his head, and he understands the depth of what goes on when there is a volcanic eruption. So that that was the real blessing, is I got to tell two different sides of the story. Yeah. Now, diving into the super volcano book, let's I guess let's start people out with a little volcano 101, if you will, you know, just sort of because, <laughs> you know, the popular conception is just from what they see on TV or the cartoons, I guess, right. or, or the science fair projects of, of volcanoes, but there's a lot yeah. more to it than that. And I was surprised that the now the caldera and the super volcano, those are kind of the same thing, right? It is. There okay. are actually about six six agreed upon different types of volcanoes. And one is the lava dome, which is, Mount St. Helens is a perfect example of. It's it's the one that we all love and it is near and dear to our heart because we recognize it so easily. There are shield volcanoes, which um, Mount Aloha and most of the Hawaiian volcanoes, including Kilauea, are shield volcanoes. And they're just sort of continuously spewing lava. There are stratovolcanoes, and Mount Rainier and Mount Shasta are good uh, examples of that. These are built up of layers of lava and debris over time. There are cinder cones, and Mount Tabor and Mount Zion are cinder cones. There are flood basalts, and these uh, the Siberian traps in Siberia is a good example of this. And then there are the calderas, and these are the big ones. These are actual large depressions that are created when the ground literally collapses or implodes uh, because of magma pressure that builds up and is then escaping through vents throughout the caldera. And you have the entire floor collapse, and that's what creates the depression. And those and those alone can, can create a supervolcano. No other type of volcano builds up enough pressure over a long enough period of time to be able to cause the, the extensive damage of a supervolcano. It seems like a, you know, like when you're getting a pimple before it even, when it's just sort of like the thing under your skin before it starts to build up. Is that kind of the scenario yeah, there? Yeah, that's, that's like the typical volcano would be like that. And it's, and it's violent, certainly, but it's very localized. You know, the pressure is all building upwards into the cone, and then it escapes through the vent, the hole at the top. I mm -hmm. mean, I'm being real simplistic yeah. here. But with a caldera, you can – Yellowstone is a good example. You can have a depression miles and miles wide, and underneath that is a lot of magma, and it is building up pressure. And when that magma begins to move and, and needs to, to get out to release itself – what you're going to see is far different from just popping a pimple, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, to get gross, but, no, but that's really <laughs> actually a great visual analogy if you think about it. I mean, it's like the difference between popping a little pimple and popping a blister that is covering your entire body. Yeah. So let's put it that way. Ouch. <laughs> let's get really gross with this. <laughs> so it's just the sheer volume of magma beneath the caldera and the fact that most calderas are very, very big in, in width and, and length. I mean, they're just – most of them are, are lakes. 
because they're so big that they tend to suck water in and fill them and become lakes. Yeah, when it finally bursts, that whole area pretty much goes, right? Well, what happens is you, the magma will release itself through vents, and it might choose to start, you know, pops one hole in the caldera floor and it vents. Chances are the magma has enough pressure, it's going to open up quite a few vents. Well, at some point, you're going to compromise the rim of that whole caldera because you've got so much going on, so much rock is being blown away, that eventually the whole caldera floor will drop down. I mean, once the magma is gone, what's holding it up? It's like if you go into a parking garage and it's held up by six columns, and all six columns are taken out by cars that run into them, that parking stru structure is going to drop yeah. because there's nothing there to hold it up anymore. That's, you know, that's pretty much what is happening when a caldera erupts. All right. Sounds good or bad. I'm not sure yet. But. <laughs> <laughs> and then the name supervolcano just sort of is attached to the caldera thing because that's like the highest magnitude of volcanic explosion there is, right? It is. And it's the, the term supervolcano is fairly recent. It was actually used a few decades ago in a uh, working group study with the USGS in England. And that term actually was coined by a producer who knew what was going on and was was discussing, you know, what are these potential supervolcanoes. And before that, they were just known to be these devastating eruptions that caused uh, miniature ice ages to occur and, and literally altered our climate for years at a time. And they're always associated with calderas. So if you don't live near a caldera, I would say you're in luck. But the thing is, is, is that these are so big that they're going to affect everybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, even if it's Lake Taupo in New Zealand that blows, we're going to be affected. Yeah, that's something I was going to ask you about when we get to the potential scenarios. But how many of these calderas would you say are around the world? We know about the one in Yellowstone, of course. That seems to be like the most famous as far as the mainstream. Right. Goes. But what about where? How many are there? Are there a lot, you know, or should people this, be concerned? Yeah, this drove my dad and I crazy because there are lists that say that there are approximately 40 supervolcanoes in the world. And we've, we're, we were able to find some lists that, you know, told which of the biggest and most famous. But we couldn't figure out where they all were. And one of the reasons is there are actually supervolcanoes being discovered every year. There were just a couple discovered up in the Andes. In, uh, I believe in Chile, or, or it might have been Peru. And what happens is they're so big. I mean, nobody knew Yellowstone was a caldera until somebody flew over it and looked down and said, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> this isn't just a big valley. So the associations between a, a big depression, a big caldera, and whether or not it's volcanic, I mean, that's been a long time coming, and it's we're still discovering them. But the biggest would be Toba, which erupted 74,000 years ago, um, Yellowstone, Long Valley, California, which is probably the deadliest, and we can talk about that later as to why, Lake Taupo, New Zealand, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Campe Flegre in, uh, off the coast of Italy, La Garita in Colorado, which is the biggest that we know of in the last 28 million years, but thankfully is an extinct supervolcano. There's one in New Mexico, and the name right now escapes me. And Iceland, uh, Russia, I mean, they're all over the place. Yeah. The, the ones that we're concerned about are the ones that are due. 
Uh, Lake Taubo, New Zealand erupted 28,000 years ago. We're not worried about that. Toba, we're not really worried about. It takes a long time for that magma to reintroduce itself. Mm -hmm. um, but Yellowstone and Long Valley, California are two that are definitely thought to be ready to go at some point. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm glad I live on the East Coast. Well, it doesn't really matter I because, know. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, that's it's hard to talk about and, you know, to sort of keep a sense of humor. The good thing is is that these things don't happen very often. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Toba eruption because that's sort of like the basis for the book or at least the starting point, I guess you could say, of the book. And like you said, what piqued your interest uh, in the subject. Uh, tell people about the Toba eruption and, and the after effects of all that. What's so fascinating about Toba, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous lake. And we found a travel agent who had a beautiful picture of it that he allowed us to use in the book. And I mean, it's just the most tranquil, beautiful place you'd ever want to go. But 74,000 years ago, it erupted. And the eruption was so big, it was at least 2,800 times bigger than Mount St. Helens wow. in the amount of debris that it sent out, you know, ash, uh, pyroclastic flow, rock, you name it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the time, what made Toba so uh, important, there are two things. It so drastically altered the climate that it created a mini ice age, and that is simply because of the amount of ash and toxic gases that were sent into the atmosphere. Not only did they affect the northern hemisphere, but they eventually make it into the southern hemisphere and, and pretty much killed 80 to 90 percent of, of all life thought at the time. Wow. But even more interesting than that is what it did genetically to human beings because at the time Toba erupted, it is believed that there were maybe about 100,000 humans on the planet. And they were all in a very localized region. We have been, uh, we had merged, emerged out of Africa before, but right now we were kind of all in a, in a sort of region known as the Middle East African area. Okay, that's where we were centered. Okay. There were Homo sapiens, there were Homo erectus, there was Neanderthalus, and there was Homo florensius, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. So there were four different subtypes of humans at the time. Toba erupted and created what is called a population bottleneck. And what that means is that enough people were killed that it drastically altered the population down to maybe, the estimates are two to 8,000 individuals were left. Wow. And what happens when you have so few breeding individuals is that later on down the road, you start to see genetic anomalies that we are now, all this time later, able to look at. And one of the, there's a theory that was developed by a professor, Stanley Ambrose, at University of Illinois. He's an anthropologist, and he wanted to know if we're all out of Africa. You know, we've all heard of the out of Africa theory. Yeah. About 100,000 years ago, approximately, we all migrated out of Africa, blah, blah, blah. Well, his question was, if we're all out of Africa, why don't we all look African? If our DNA is all so incredibly identical, I mean, it's, it's just so similar, you know, why do we all look so different now? And when he found out about Toba, he was actually listening to a lecture by, I believe, Stephen Self and Michael Rampino, two um, seismologists. And when he heard that, he put two and two together and realized that Toba, the eruption of Toba, could have been the trigger for this population bottleneck that literally genetically altered us forever. And it perfectly explains why our genetic variation is so low 
meaning that our DNA is so similar, mm -hmm. yet our differentiation is so high. Yeah, that's what I was wondering about, actually. Uh, I, I was a little confused about that. With the, I don't understand the differentiation part. If we all have the same genetics, why are the people so different? Exactly. And this, even though uh, this idea, this theory, it's called the Toba Catastrophe Theory, mm -hmm. and it's being very widely accepted because there's a lot of genetic research with mitochondrial DNA, which is the matrilineal line, but also with the um, patrilineal line of DNA that is backing this up. Still have some uh, some people that are insisting, no, 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 it had nothing to do with it, just, you know, a coincidence. But it's a theory that really has gained a ton of acceptance because it so perfectly explains why our, our, you know, why our human species looks the way it does on the outside, which is, you know, we have such an incredible amount of diversity, and yet genetically we're we're identical. And is the diversity caused just by? People moving around other places. What happens? Or, you know, yeah, I, I mean, basically, confused. after you have a population <laughs> bottleneck where your 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 species almost goes extinct. Yeah. What happened afterwards? And there again is genetic evidence of this. You have population explosions because it's like nature's trying to make up for lost time. Oh, uh, okay. But people are breeding basically with the same groups. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's not necessarily inbreeding, although I'm sure there was inbreeding, because if it did go only down to 2,000 individuals and they're spread out over a little bit of a region there, you're going to have some inbreeding. Yeah. So there is a lot of uh, genetic anomalies that were detected, um, genetic drift, all kinds of things that they could see happened in the 30,000 years following Toba. Mm-hmm. It was as if suddenly our population exploded. Why? And at the same time, there was a lot of historical evidence that we did migrate out of that area and start spreading around and repopulating. And at the same time, the other three subtypes of humans went extinct and Homo sapien carried on the flag, so to speak. So you've got all this stuff that just fits in perfectly with this super eruption and the six-year ice age that it caused, which was also responsible for killing off a lot of those people. And not only that, but there are population bottlenecks that occurred at the same time in other species, certain types of chimpanzees, you know, other animals where geneticists were able to see, hey, something definitely happened at this point in time. And it didn't just change humans, it changed other species that were in that region as well. Yeah. Now, have they, you know, these volcanists and, and uh, I guess, genetic researchers and stuff, have they come up with any other events like the Toba event maybe that may have pre, you Nothing. know, come along before that, like the dinosaur extinction type situation or Nothing other in events? That, no, and I mean, what's really cool about... You know, genetics, they're able to, it's not like they can get to the day that it happened, but with genetic research using mitochondrial DNA, it's very accurate in determining when changes, you know, in the DNA occur, and when there are genetic changes. And there was nothing else that any scientist or geologist or oceanographer or a climatologist could find that happened at that time, like maybe we had a flyby with a comet or, you know, whatever. Nobody could come up with any other event other than Toba, and and nobody could come up with anything big enough to do what Toba could do. It just fit the perfect – it was just the perfect explanation. But um, what I mean by that is, like, 
prior to Toba, has this sort of thing happened before? Like, are we going through a cyclical type situation oh, with these bottlenecks and stuff? I mean, it is now pretty much widely accepted that the uh, extinction of the dinosaurs had a lot to do with supervolcanic activity. So, yes, this does happen. There have been other population bottlenecks in, in history. and Humans have had to migrate out of certain areas and kind of start all over again. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. And, you know, the thing is, is that only now when we have such high numbers of humans would something like that probably never happen again. But you're talking about a time when there were so few bodies walking the planet that if something bad happened, we were at a delicate enough point in our evolution that it could have extincted us easily. Yeah. Well, we lucked out, I guess. We, we did. And, yeah, a lot of it is because people at that time knew how to live close to the Earth. And there were, were enough, uh, apparently, the idea is that there were people that were in caves at the time or they were in more tropical areas where maybe the ash fall did not affect them as much because of the tree. I mean, there's all kinds of theories as to why certain pockets survived. But they did, because if they didn't, you and I wouldn't be talking. Yeah, sort of like the idea of, I don't know if it was an urban legend or not, but when the bomb went off in Hiroshima, you know, someone standing behind a pole or something and, and they made it out okay. Yeah, you just don't know. I mean, certain people have more resilience than others. And then one part, now I'm not sure if this is uh, one of the things that you investigated for the book, but I have a sinking suspicion it might be, but um, that's the cellular memory part. Yeah, and the reason why that actually intrigued my dad and I, because I had read about that. And the funny thing is, is there's news stories coming out now that I wish we would have had, you know, had for the book when we were writing it. Yeah, it seems like the cellular memory stuff's getting even more popular lately in the last few weeks with these really stories of, is. you know, uh, transplants from suicide victims causing yeah. suicides and stuff like that. But I read a book called uh, by Joseph Christie Vitale called Watermark, and it was about a, an alleged near flyby that we had about eleven to twelve thousand years ago with a chunk of a comet called Phaeton. And, and this is actually a, you know, a, a common theory that something happened in that time frame that, again, caused a mini ice age and really screwed us up. Well, what I was really interested in was his take on um, how that affected people on a psychological level. That kind of trauma, we can't even imagine. I mean, you saw how depressed people became after 9-11. If you can imagine the kind of trauma of a supervolcano or or a comet coming so close that it literally, you know, changes the magnetic shift. It just really, that kind of fear uh, that must have happened, not only that, but seeing 80 to 90 percent of your neighbors die, could that psychological trauma be just, have just as strong an effect on your DNA as physical changes, yeah. physical traumas? And there's a lot of evidence that states that, yes, that we carry with us emotional memory just as we do uh, information as to what color hair we should have, how tall we should be, that our DNA is more than just about how we look. It also uh, carries information about our physical makeup or our uh, psychological makeup, I should say. So that was fascinating to me. And again, there's no valid, perfect 100% proof, but there's a lot of very intriguing evidence that you see with organ donor uh, recipients. Yeah, it's been coming out a lot lately, too, with, uh, like I said, with the recent news stories and stuff like that. And there's always sort of been that idea of a collective group memory, you know, exactly. it's like the flood, trauma. flood type stuff. Collective trauma. And we have to, uh, we have to 
at least throw the idea out there that when something that traumatic happens on a collective level, it is changing us. And then one part I know that you researched was the myths and legends part. And you know, I do, I always love myths and legends, and I know you're very interested in, in the religious aspects of yeah. stuff. So let's talk about that, the, you know, the volcanoes and myths and, and religion. I really like that. That was a fun chapter. My dad actually had some good stories about when, uh, you know, with Hawaii and some of the legends of Pele and throughout. I mean, if you just look at the Bible, and there are dozens of natural disasters and catastrophes, and the way people responded to them was always with a sort of fear and reverence that they associated with being punished by the gods, or they made the volcanoes themselves the gods. And so throughout mythology of, of every region, whether it's North, Norse or Roman or Greek mythology, all of the native traditions, and even the big three, you know, the Western traditions, yeah. volcanoes and other types of natural disasters fit right into the archetypes that we've been living by and believing in. I mean, they're actually a part of the stories that all of these religions tell. You're probably the only person I know who could answer this, but you know the old, like, uh, cartoons <laughs> and, and ideas that, you know, that they throw a virgin into the volcano. Is that sort of stuff true, or is that just... Yes, Oh, wow. Is. Yes, absolutely. Sacrifices were made to volcanoes, you know, and we're talking about native cultures that had quite a bit of fear of these natural disasters. They didn't understand that they were perfectly normal scientifically explainable events that uh, were really the earth was just shaping itself over and making a few adjustments here and there. They thought that those were the gods and that those gods had to be appeased. And the only way to do that was to sacrifice a, a, a child or throw a virgin into the volcano. And interestingly, the Mayans that who everyone thinks were so advanced, and they certainly did have an advanced civilization, they believed in sacrifice, too, to try to appease the gods. Huh. Now, that sort of stuff, that's not going on nowadays, though. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I love those movies on the sci-fi channel, you know, where the plane crashes and the crew gets out, and they're stuck in the jungle, and it's some ancient tribal cult that's still sacrificed. Uh, you know, I mean, it could be going on out there. We have indigenous tribes that nobody's ever really spent much time with. Yeah, I'm thinking I mean, of that. I mean, I know cannibalism is still around. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of that Tom Hanks movie there, uh, Joe vs. the Volcano. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, hopefully we have enough of an understanding now that the Earth has nothing personal. You know, this stuff is not personal. Yeah. It's not an affront to humanity. And now you say Long Valley is the most dangerous of the potential calderas. Um, well, why, I guess, is the question, really. Why, why is that the most dangerous? Well, it's not the biggest. You know, the Yellowstone, the main caldera at Yellowstone is bigger. Um, but there's a misunderstanding about Yellowstone that my dad, you know, really wanted to clear up in the book, and, and he he's very adamant that people know this. You will hear a lot of people on radio shows or on TV say that Yellowstone is overdue because there have been three super eruptions in the last so-and-so years, and, well, one of those was not a super eruption. It was just a plain old eruption. And calderas can indeed have simple eruptions every now and then that don't qualify as being a super eruption. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was people started using this this uh, pattern. Oh, there's been three and one here and one here and one here, and so now we're overdue. Well, when you take that second eruption out of the picture, we're not really that overdue. Yeah. 
we're coming close. There's certainly been enough time for a ton of magma to build up, and it is moving. There is activity at Yellowstone. But the reason why we chose Long Valley is because there's been more activity at Long Valley. And last year when we were writing the book, there was a research study released from Scripps Oceanic Institute, which is here in my hometown in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it stated, it was about the San Andreas Fault, which everybody hears about, you know, the big one yeah. that's coming. And about how a, uh, an earthquake of a massive magnitude, possibly bigger than an eight, bigger than anybody imagined, is pretty much imminent. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's going to happen any minute, any day, whenever. Could could be 20 years, but they're really pushing that it's imminent. And what what came out of this was that Long Valley is close enough to this section of the San Andreas Fault and, in fact, shares some uh, geologic connection with that area that if the San Andreas were to go, and if it were to be big enough, it could potentially trigger a, a, a super eruption at Long Valley. Now, you can't say the same about Yellowstone because you don't have the geological connections and the distance is too yeah. great. And there are no massive fault lines near Yellowstone. There's a lot of big earthquakes that, there that they have all the time, but nothing like what could potentially happen here in Southern California. And Long Valley is in central California. So if that part of the San Andreas goes, that ground is going to be shaken like crazy. And if that magma gets the opportunity to blow a few vent holes in the caldera floor, boom. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure just the, the population levels are so high there in California as compared to around Yellowstone. Absolutely. We've got major, major urban centers here. And not that, you know, not to mention the fact that for those of us that live on the coast, as I do, we would be completely cut off from, from getting away. I mean, if we could go north and south, but really, actually, I wouldn't be able to go north. So, uh, you know, Yellowstone is a little more in an area where you might be able to, to go north, south, east, or west, depending on where the, the, the direction of the ash flow. But really, for California, we would become so isolated, even if we if we did survive. And, and really, people within 500 miles of the event would not likely survive. Oh, wow. It's that yeah. bad, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yikes. You came to stop the anger of the woo? Yeah. Tonight we will have a big feast, and then at the end of the feast you will climb to the top of the big woo and you will jump in, okay? Okay. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Take me to the volcano! Before we talk about Yellowstone, is there anything that scientists can do to get ahead of one of these supervolcano eruptions? Like, could they drill holes and... Nothing. Uh, A supervolcano is one of the... Few, there's like a list of 10, you know, massive catastrophic events that could destroy humanity. And a lot of them, like nuclear war and plague, are preventable. Yeah. Even a, even an asteroid is preventable if we can come up with the technology to divert it, and which we are. Supervolcanoes, on the other hand, are not preventable. If you were to drill a hole in a magma floor, you would cause a supervolcano to erupt. <laughs> so you oh, don't man. want to do that. Lucky I'm not in charge of this, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> so really, um, it, you know, we can't focus on preventing them. What has to be focused on is surviving. 
you know, what do we do afterwards? Because it's not just the event. It's not just the uh, two, three weeks that that caldera is going to be spewing ash and exploding, because that's how long supervolcanoes can last. I mean, we're not talking about a one-day, one-hour event. We're talking about over days, sometimes weeks, of constant eruption until the floor collapses in the final big burst. Um, but it's what happens after that. It's the amount of ash that's deposited, how widespread it is, the, the destruction to agriculture and drinkable water, people dying from breathing in ash because it's nothing but uh, tiny shards of glass. So it's all of the after effects, really, that would do us in. The main event will kill everybody in its path. Yeah. But it's what happens afterwards. Yeah, it's knowing how to survive that sort of thing. And, and Famine. If you think about it, political anarchy. And that's one of the things my dad and I really were interested in. What would happen? The government would – there would be no government. Uh, any kind of structure and organization and infrastructure would be non-existent. You do make a good point in the book that if there is the ash in the drinking water, that people should just leave the water and the ash will settle down. I, yeah, I'm that's glad I picked that, that up from the yeah. book. Well, I guess take us through sort of the scenario, you know, how we could expect this sort of thing to play out. We did a scenario with Long Valley, and we started it with an eruption on the San Andreas. So we got that in there. And, and basically, to, you know, keep it short so people can get the the visual gist of it, mm -hmm. you would have a, a massive earthquake on the southern San Andreas. And that would trigger a series of earthquakes around the Long Valley caldera. And over time, they would build to the point where there was just so much stress that you then began to, to have the vents opening. And magma, you know, you'll have, you'll have signs and signals of something big coming. Scientists point to what's called harmonic tremor, and that is the movement of magma between the caldera floor. And that is a surefire sign that something is going on. It's not necessarily a surefire sign that there's going to be a super eruption, but nine times out of ten, you know, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. So uh, what will happen is the, this sort of buildup of pressure, and there will be a lot of seismic activity, and you'll have vents opening up, and they will begin to, they will begin the series of eruptions. And you'll have everything and anything spewing out of those vents, and eventually, over days or weeks, the caldera rim will become so compromised and weak because of all of those vents blowing holes through the floor. And all of the magma will be released from the, the chamber that you then have the final collapse of the caldera floor. And that pretty much ends the event itself. But now you've got all of that ash you know, hitting the jet stream and, and traveling all across the northern hemisphere, blacking out the sky for days, weeks, months, causing a mini ice age that could go on for years. In the case of Toba, it's estimated it lasted at least six years. Eventually, that ash goes into the southern hemisphere and begins to do damage there to agriculture, to drinkable water, um, you know, food sources. We, in America, we have the grain belt here. That would be destroyed. Travel routes would be shut down. There would be no importing of product. There would be no exporting of product. Uh, governments would just pretty much be non-functioning or functioning at an extremely low emergency level. You would have people rioting, trying to find shelter, emergency care, food, water. You know, I mean, you think you can pretty much imagine how that would play out. 
and the event itself would have been over a long time ago. How widespread would the area affected be? And I know you said the ash would be up in the jet stream, but like here in Boston, would it just be, you know, really cold? Well, you know, there's, there's some uh, imaging that's been done <clears throat> that shows, you know, how much ash would be maybe, you know, 10 inches here in this region. Yeah. And, well, eventually the entire globe would be affected. Uh, I mean, we're talking about global climate change. We're not just talking about regional. Mm -hmm. Most of the ash itself, of course, like in Long Valley, it's estimated that, you know, it would be maybe 20 centimeters thick right in that, that immediate zone, uh, five centimeters thick, maybe 500 miles out. Uh, but, but you have to understand something. Even a, a percentage of a set, centimeter of a layer of ash can shut down airports, can destroy crops, can poison the soil. Not to mention the fact that if it's breathed in by anything alive, you've got problems. Yeah, exactly. So even though your ash fall in Boston, you're going to see it, you're going to notice it, you're going to notice the sky, definitely. But say you lived in, in Italy, or better yet, say you lived in New Zealand, because that's in the southern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. You're not going to notice it right away, but eventually you are going to see that the sky has a different cast to it, that uh, it's colder, you know, the the sun isn't shining the way it used to. And a lot of the gases that are in the air last for a very long time, too. The sulfuric acid that's released causes the UVB rays to get to us in a way that they normally don't because it causes damage to the ozone layer. So you're going to see skyrocketing increases in skin cancer. So, yeah, you're better off in Boston than me in San Diego. But ultimately, when it when six months pass and you don't have a job because the economy has just been crippled, there's no Wall Street, you know, <laughs> food is like so short that people are killing each other over it. That's where you're going to see the most after effects. Almost like a Katrina situation on a national scale. Well, on a global. Because, again, we're so uh, locked into what we import and export, and countries depend on us for grain, and we depend on China for what, everything. Yeah. So if cargo routes are, are shut down, if, if air travel is shut down for weeks because of the ash in the air, which can shut down an, a plane engine, um, everybody's going to going to go into the grocery store and see very little on those shelves. I mean, there's just going to be so many different things that people are going to have to deal with that they've never had to deal with before. Yeah, kind of like what happened with New Zealand in this scenario. It's also a situation where if, if the a caldera were to blow in you know, Asia or something, we'd still be pretty badly affected by it, even though we, we would. would. Yeah, maybe. Ash. Yeah, I mean, if New Zealand, you know, obviously the southern hemisphere will get the brunt, but because of the jet streams and the, you know, the, the air circulation routes, eventually it does make it into the other hemisphere. And with, you know, with the, the super volcanoes in question, we're talking Long Valley and Yellowstone, those are both in the northern hemisphere. And most commerce, most of the population, uh, you know, the urban centers, they're in the Northern Hemisphere. So it would just be, and you know, the most powerful governments are in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. So that would cause a lot of problems that I don't even think we can imagine. I do know that there are plans being discussed as to what would happen and how it would be handled. But, you know, we don't have anything to reference because all we've had to deal with are things like 9-11 and Katrina, which, though tragic, could be considered regional. 
Yeah, and poorly handled by the government. Oh, gosh. I mean, I was just going to say, you know, look how they handled Katrina. You think they're going to handle what was just described? I don't know. Yeah, it's good. It's a bad scene. Is there a timetable on this sort of thing, or is it sort of like from now to, you know, 100 years from now it could happen? I mean, are we... we you know, nature is on her own timetable. I mean, even with the San Andreas, I've lived in L- in uh, L.A. and San Diego. I've lived in Southern California for a long time, and I cannot tell you how many times they've warned us, you know, that there's activity and, oh, it's going to blow, go get your three days' worth of water, and then five more years go by. There is no way to know except by watching the signs, is there increased activity around the area, Um you know, is the magma really moving? What's going on? And we've got monitoring systems that are working on this 24-7, so it's not like we won't have any warning. But we still don't know when that actual moment would occur where the Earth just says, that's it, you know, I'm blowing this magma out of here. Yeah. And it's the same way with earthquakes. I mean, who knew that Reno was going to be going, and Indiana, I mean, we just don't yeah. know. Yeah. And and like you point out, even no matter how prepared we are, we still have to deal with the after effects of that situation. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. What can people do to prepare themselves for that sort of thing? Is there even much you can do other than the basic sort of, you know, emergency supply type situation? I think, you know, with super volcanoes, probably the best thing is the basics and then some. Because they always tell you with the basics, you know, have three days worth or 72 hours worth of water. Well, that ain't going to cut it when you're not going to be able to get food and fresh water for possibly weeks, yeah, maybe even months. Um, the thing is, is that you have to kind of balance the possibility of that happening with other concerns. Not everybody can afford to go out and stock up six months' worth of fresh water and dried food and have a, a, a dome shelter that they can live in to stay out of the ash. So certainly I think people everywhere should always have emergency kits because look what's happening. I mean, we've, we've got tornadoes and all kinds of stuff going on and, and going into areas that they never had before. But you cannot prepare for something like that unless you live out in the boonies and you have your own food and water supply and, again, some type of shelter. And so what is more important to focus on that or to try to pay your bills and keep your house? Yeah, it's tough. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Like you said, you have to balance that. Otherwise, you're you know you're the kook in the <laughs> yeah, and building I mean, his own bomb shelter or something. You know, we could get hit by an asteroid before then, or or have a somebody go nuts and have a nuclear war. It's good to know that super volcanoes exist, especially if you live near one. But I do not think anybody should be wasting their time, you know, stressing over what's going to happen because it it could be another 100,000 years before any one of them erupts, yeah. and it could be tomorrow. And you know what? If it's tomorrow, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like that old, you know, if it's your time to go, it's your time to go, I guess. Yeah, you know? yeah. You just do your best. Well, where can where can people pick up Super Volcano? I have other questions for you about other stuff, but uh, but we're kind of wrapping up the Super Volcano discussion. Super Volcano, I mean, online, it's in every brick-and-mortar bookstore, anywhere books are sold. Nice. And look for it in the science section because that's what it says on the back of the book. Yeah. So. Actually, I found one yesterday in the nature section of Barnes & Noble. So, oh. Yeah. Science, nature. Just ask yeah. the people that work there. They'll yeah, find really, it for you. Yeah, really. You know, <laughs> somebody said they found one in history, which I thought was, you know, they had a good point, but I don't know. <laughs> 
it's always up to the one guy who gets it, takes it out of the box, I think. He probably exactly. makes the decision. Exactly. But, yeah, <laughs> anywhere books are sold and online, people can grab right, it. It's Amazon. a great book. Very well-researched. i got to put you over that. You and your dad did a great job. Oh, uh, thank you. Just amazingly well-researched and, and tremendously detailed. Just a great book and, and worth reading for anyone who's interested in this whole super volcano stuff that seems to have really picked up steam, uh, no pun intended, in the last few years. <laughs> Yeah, I think maybe we wrote it just in time, huh? I think, yeah, it worked out pretty well for you guys. What Now, before we move on to the other stuff, how long has this, like, Yellowstone popularity, I guess you could say, been going on? This is the last question I guess I have. It sort of just popped into my head. But it seems like I didn't really hear about it until, like, the last couple of years ago. Has this been something they've known about for a while and it just started – breaking into the mainstream, or is this a relatively new discovery, if you will? You know, you, scientists have been looking at it for a while because of the activity of the past and because of the activity that's occurring now, but, you know, it's the media, it's the sci-fi channel, the history channel, Discover, it's all of these, I love all these cable channels, but, you know, they are looking for natural disaster programming, and so they've been focusing on Yellowstone because nobody ever really knew about Long Valley uh, until this this study, well, our book came out and this study came out linking it to the San Andreas Fault. I mean, of course, scientists knew, but the media hadn't picked up on it yet, and they still haven't, which surprises me. With Toba, um, when my dad and I started writing the book, all of a sudden there were a couple of Discovery Channel documentaries. So it takes a while, but it, the scientists get the stuff first, then the media catches hold of it, and then the public Seems to be the way it is with all, yeah. all this stuff. <laughs> all right. Well, definitely, folks, check out Super Volcano wherever fine books are sold, wherever regular books are sold, and, and uh, wherever all books are sold, and online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the great online booksellers, the publishers, New Page Books. And now the other thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, is something we didn't get a chance to discuss uh, when I had you on the show last time, but it is something I do enjoy uh, talking about, and that's women in the field of the esoteric or paranormal right. field, if you will. And as I said in the introduction, you're definitely one of the preeminent women in the field, and I, I don't want to qualify it just like that. You're definitely one of the preeminent researchers in the field of the paranormal. But why do you think it is that there seems to be so few prominent women in the field of the paranormal? I mean, obviously there are a lot of women in the field, but it seems like it's predominantly dominated by men. You know, this is the weird thing. When I was younger, um, I was really into the occult when I was a teenager mm -hmm. and, and Wicca and all that kind of stuff. And at the time, and I'm in my 40s, so at the time, women were doing this. Men, you know, guys, not so much. And then it sort of died down, and the UFO phenomena came full force. And that was sort of a masculine area of study. I was out there with MUFON, but there were really, it was 90% guys. And I think what happened is, because I know of hundreds and hundreds of ghost hunting groups and researchers, and the vast majority of them are women. Yeah, I know. But the well-known ones, the ones who get the TV shows, um, you know, or or have their own radio shows, tend to be guys. And I'm not sure what that, why that is, because I think women have a natural affinity for the unknown, because we're more right brain. <laughs> <laughs> but in my case. As a writer, I think I, you know, I'm allowed to take risks that some men and women in the paranormal field cannot take. Yeah. Uh, if you have a, a guy, you know, a guy who's a ghost hunter or he runs an investigatory group or whatever, or a woman, they they can't necessarily get into some of the theories and things that I'm allowed to as a writer because they have a certain mode of thinking that they represent. 
And uh, what I've noticed about a lot of these groups is that they do really tend to operate inside of a very small box. Yeah. And it's only the right the writers or the ones that choose to write that are able to take the risks and start talking about quote unquote other things. And you know, I've never had a problem doing that. And with science, I just I knew that there were people writing books like that, like Dean Radin, but they were scientists. Nobody in the paranormal was talking about quantum physics that I knew of. And I thought, well, you know, I'm in the in the field, but I'm also on the outside. Yeah, that's the best so place I, to be. <laughs> that and that's what gave me the advantage. I can go off and write a book about. Uh, you know, a frog infestation and go right back next year and write another paranormal book. I'm allowed to do that. But, um, you know, if you're if you're a paranormal investigator, you really are living in a very small box, and sometimes it's hard to break out of it. Yeah, yeah. Now, you think that's an effect of the field itself or yes. just, oh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, I really am, I get a little sick with all these quote-unquote ghost hunting shows on TV because, my partner on my next book is, you know, runs an organization. He'll kill me if I call him a ghost hunter, but that's really not what he is. He's a very scientific person, and he has told me time and time again, and I know he told you when you interviewed him, they have, you know, seven, eight hours of doing nothing. Yeah. And things don't always happen, and on a vast majority of, of investigations, nothing happens. But the media has picked up on it and made it look like such a glamorous thing. Now you're being inundated with people who are calling themselves researchers and investigators. And it's tainting the field. It's a real challenge for the groups that are more science-oriented. And I think for women in general, you may be interested in science, but nobody's going to listen to you because you are a woman who's interested in science. That's very difficult. Yeah. Um, I broke out of that because, you know, I, I wrote a book. I mean, I, I really think that's probably the only thing that got me above the fray, so to speak, is that I just decided to sit down and write a book. Now, I know you were involved in, like you said, you were involved with MUFON in the 80s and 90s and stuff like that. It seems like yeah. women in ufology is an even more scarce uh, situation, and the and the prominent women who are in ufology, they seem to be the victims of a lot of, you know, they seem to be more scrutinized oh, than the men. <laughs> You're being nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, either they're attacked all the time for their ideas or they're relegated to niche areas of research, like maybe just the abduction scenarios or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I loved it. Yeah, there were a lot of guys. But you know what? Not one of them knew any more about what UFOs were than I did. Exactly. I mean, we're, and when I moved to San Diego, I started a MUFON chapter with another woman because we couldn't find anybody doing it. So I think women get the job done, but you're right. They tend to get attacked more. Uh, you would not believe some of the emails I've gotten uh, focusing on my looks instead of what I wrote about. Uh, it, there's that sexism there. You know, you can't be an attractive woman and have a brain. So, yeah, there's a lot of that out there. It's really unfortunate. Like you point out in the field of ufology, it seems like and there's a lot of great women doing great work, but... They well, don't you're get, never going to hear about them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's really strange in the sense of, you know, we have a lot of female writers that have been all of America, and I try to promote it as much as possible. But it seems just really strange that you could probably count on one hand, maybe you need the other one to, to name, you know, uh, the prominent female ufologists out there. Exactly. I mean, I you know, I think of Linda Moulton Howe and Yvonne Smith, and I think that I can't even think of any other names off the top of my head right now, but... But you're right. And the thing is, is that the, the men that are out there, and I love men, I'm not bashing men, but 
they have not been able to come up with any answers any more so than the women. So I don't think that it's, you know, the power of the male intellect supersedes that of the female intellect. I just think it's like in a lot of other fields, it's just good old sexism. Yeah, and it's also very clicky in general. So it is. Actually, yeah. The paranormal community is very clicky. And, and again, as a writer, I get to engage in that community, but I also get to engage outside of it because I've seen that clickiness and it really repels me. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. No. It's, it's one of the things that really puts me off about the whole thing, too. As a host of a show, you know, you get the emails from people that want you to have certain people on and don't want you to have other people on. And if they're yeah. not part of the in crowd, you know, they get mad at you because, you, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like high school, like I've said any before. T- yeah, and any time something becomes like high school, like you just said, that's great, you know it's on the downslide. And, you know, another problem is all of these different groups that are out there and not and I would say 90% of them have no training whatsoever in what they're doing, how to use their equipment, or nor do they have a basic understanding of the scientific aspects of what it is they're researching. They're just out there trying to be the ghost chasers, and it's really hurting the field. It's unfortunate. This big fad of ghost hunting is is, um, when the the bottom falls out on that, when the bubble bursts, it's going to be ugly, I think. You know what? But I'll be thrilled. <laughs> oh yeah. So, well, as an observer of it all, I will yes. too. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right there with me, and and I'm just waiting for the bubble to burst because that's when real dialogue will begin, and that's when the few people that really were in there to try to understand the phenomena will continue on, and the rest will go off to the next fad. Who knows what it'll be? You know, water yeah. skiing naked. I mean, I don't know, but <laughs> they're just going to go jump on the next bandwagon and good riddance. The sooner the better, in my opinion, because this ghost hunting thing, I'm hoping it seems like it's kind of starting to peter out a little bit just from oversaturation. It is. That's what I'm hearing uh, from a lot of the you know people that I do respect out there, that it's just reached the tipping point. And if you go on MySpace and look at all that, there's like 800 oh, groups it's in ridiculous. each state. Yeah. <laughs> It's crazy. I was telling Larry when we had him on the show that yeah. I accidentally found one that was like in my town, and I'm from just a little small town, and I was like, oh what, what is this? What is going on here? This is crazy. There's like maybe one haunted place in my whole town. Exactly. I don't even know. And that's why I, I chose to work with Larry, because he and I hit it off. We have the same uh, ideas about how things should be done, and he, you know, his group has managed to rise above that, and that is difficult because it's more glamorous to just sort of pretend you're, you know, the ghost hunter guys running around and, and being on camera and having groupies. But Larry is very much into the research. What is going on here? You know, forget the cameras. And if you're in this whole thing for groupies, forget it. That's yeah. <laughs> money I, but, and groupies yeah, is the last really, thing you're going to get. Money, forget it. Oh, boy. <laughs> But I love the paranormal field. I, I've grown up with it. I, I, it fascinates me. And as a writer, I get to dabble in it whenever I feel like it. And then when I'm not feeling like it, I can go off and write a book about volcanoes. Exactly. Yeah, that's the good thing about you as a researcher and as a writer uh, that I have a lot of respect for. And uh, same sort of mindset that I've been preaching a lot in the, yeah. in the last few months here, you know, is uh, you can live in the world of the paranormal, but don't live it. You know, exactly. when, when you walk away, really walk away. Don't spend oh, your whole yeah. life involved in this thing. Cause it's, exactly. It's, it's like just, living with blinders on. Exactly. There's so much more uh, of the world out there to enjoy than than just the paranormal. 
Well, and ironically, every other field of, of science that I've studied, and I love science, you know, from marine biology to genetics, you will find information that can apply to your paranormal research. If you don't have that well-rounded education, you should not be doing paranormal research. Exactly. But, you know, try telling that to them. Oh, please, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, you've got another book coming out soon, uh, real soon, actually, because this interview yeah. will be posted uh, late May, early June, so it'll be right around the corner now, and that's 2013. Yeah. Yes. Uh, talk a little bit about that. It's coming out in July. It's from New Page, right? New Page Books, yeah. 2013, The End of Days or New Beginning, Envisioning the World After the Events of 2012. I am the queen of long subtitles. <laughs> um, I have always, I, I've been fascinated with the mythology of 2012, uh, not just the Mayan calendar mythology that everybody knows about, but the Judeo-Christian concept of Armageddon, you know, and all of this, this the idea that we're going to reach technological singularity. And I just wanted to put a book together that pretty much covered every flippin' thing you could think of that, that has to do with 2012. And in the research came across a million other things, uh, including medical breakthroughs, you know, quantum computing, information technology, all this stuff that is much more realistic in terms of what we might be facing in the next four years. Yeah. Um, bionics and genetics, you know, longevity research. So the book is sort of half about the Mayan calendar and the idea of an end time and a, a new transformation of consciousness. And then, you know, most of it is really about things like geopolitical shifts towards to the east. Are we going to reach peak oil? You know, what's going to happen with uh, the shortage of drinkable water? All these things that we are going to have to face in the next four years. We've got emerging diseases like crazy and nobody's talking about it. So it's kind of like two books in one. And then at the end of the book, I had a lot of amazing people contribute essays as to their vision of the world after 2012. And we got everybody from uh, Whitley Stryber did my foreword. We got Daniel Pinchbeck, Dr. Bob Hieronymus, um, Edgar Mitchell, uh, just, you know, this amazing collection of essays in the end that will fascinate people. Nick Redford contributed one. Nice. Yeah, it's, and it's amazing to see the, the diverse opinions of what people think will happen or not happen. It's good that you're putting together a thoughtful book on 2012 because it seems oh, yeah. like, like we're talking <laughs> about the, the ghost thing. It seems like the 20, this thing's only going to get bigger and crazier as we get closer it to is, 2012. And, and there's a lot of kooks out there promoting a lot of really strange ideas. And again, I, I can't say for sure nothing strange is going to happen. But to me, what was more fascinating is what we can pretty much expect will happen. Yeah. Based on, you know, what's happening now. Exactly. And also, you have another book here coming out, and also in the numerical theme. Yeah. Uh, 11 11. <laughs> and you're going to be co authoring that with Larry, as you were That's saying. Larry. That's our first book. Yeah. We're going to be doing a lot of books together. And this is about 11 uh, 11 is a time prompt that a lot of people report uh, waking up to or seeing all the time. Mm -hmm. And it was actually my publisher's idea to look into it. He said, you know, see if there's something to this. And I did. And I, I also found that it really linked to a whole book about signs and sequences and uh, numeric sequences and how um, there are patterns in nature that we can't explain. So it's really a book about the magic and profound mystery of numbers. And it is just blows my mind because, again, it's stuff that people just are not aware of. 
is God a number? I mean, can we can we uh, narrow the creative force down to an actual numeric sequence? And Larry was excited about it, so I asked him if he wanted to do it together as our first book, and he said yes. So awesome. it should be really interesting. When can we expect eleven eleven to show up? November eleventh, maybe. Yeah, I wish. No, unfortunately, February of two thousand nine. <laughs> okay. So they should have done that. You know, that would have been clever. <laughs> so 2-9. Yep. <laughs> awesome. So that will be in February 2009. I have a feeling we'll have you back for Season 4. Oh, um, I hope especially so. Especially with, with these two books coming out. <laughs> Probably around the same time of year. So you're becoming our springtime tradition, I think. Hey, I can have the springtime slot. <laughs> yes, definitely. There you go. Well, like I said, Maria, I have just a world of respect for you. Uh, I really appreciate your serious-minded research into all things paranormal and not so paranormal, like here with Super Volcano. I've been trying to get you on the show for a while, but we finally got our schedule synced yeah. up here. <laughs> we're two busy people, aren't we? <laughs> I know, I know, but luckily it worked out pretty well. Yes, and it's always a pleasure. Like I said, and I mean it, I'm not just, you know, kissing your butt here. You're definitely one of the... Pre- <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> definitely one of the preeminent researchers uh, in the field, and, and we need more grounded, realistic people like you in, in the world of the paranormal and less, you know, people that fly off the handle at, at a scene of light in the sky. So uh, me. <laughs> the, the more Marie D. Jones we have in the paranormal world, the better. That's what I say. So thanks again for coming back on the show. Oh, thank you so much. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Big, big, super huge thanks to Marie Jones for coming back on the show. You can find out more on Marie Jones at her website, www.mariedjones.com, M-A-R-I-E-D-J-O-N-E-S.com. Check it out. Moving right along, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And this week's letter comes from Rob G. Under the subject line, make a great site better, which is always a nice way to get my attention. The body of the email says, I appreciate your audio file interviews. I think it would be even better if you included links to the websites your guests promote and if you included their pictures next to the summary. Keep up the great work, Rob G. Well, there you go. Thanks for writing in, Rob G. I appreciate the feedback. For starters, regarding the pictures of the guests, we used to do that when we first started out during Season 1, but somewhere along the line in the crush of the deadlines and trying to get the program out on time, it sort of fell between the cracks, if you will, and we stopped doing the pictures of the guests. That's more of a time issue, and just sometimes you just can't find a picture of a guest So it throws off the whole thing. So after a while, instead of having pictures for some and not for others, we sort of just decided to go with no pictures at all. Regarding the website links, now if you go to the summaries of every interview, the first time the guest is mentioned in the recap, their name is a hard link. It should be a different color, and it'll stand out from the rest of the summary text. That is the link to the guest's website. And, of course, we always include links to the guest's website in the bios on the summary page. But I can see what he's talking about. He wants maybe the links and the pictures included in the summary. Something definitely to consider. I've been already sort of putting thought into how we're going to format the Season 4 pages. And maybe we'll bring back pictures for that. I'm not sure. But I'll definitely keep it in mind. Ironically enough, I should also mention that we have gone back and remastered all of the pages for BOA Audio Season 1. Now, if you go back, the 
pages are pretty much uniform in font size and layout and included the full show mp3 download link which wasn't around back when we did season one but i know it's a very popular option for people who want to download the episode so we went back and added in the full show mp3 link for all the season one episodes so there you have it thanks to rob g for writing in of course there are the three great methods to get in touch with me if you want to be a part of listener feedback either the email address boaaudio at hotmail.com or the contact button on banalofamerica.com or finally join up at the usofe.com the official banal of america forum t-h-e-u-s-o-f-e dot com check it out lots of great folks at the usofe always something cooking on the forum any of those methods the website the email forum can get your correspondence into my hands and then eventually have it make its way to this portion of the program that we call BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Up next it is the thanks where we heap praise and kudos onto the outstanding BOA staff. Let me run down the list. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. They are the top-notch BOA staff, fresh, enlightening reading material Monday through Friday. We would be a shell of what we are today without their support and insight. So I thank them once again this week for their contributions to the BOA machine. I say it week in and week out, but it's the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Benal of America, you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the part of the show where we ask for your donations. Pretty simple. A program like this costs quite a pretty penny for me. Lengthy long-distance phone calls, a number of them international calls to all over the world. And every call runs at least over an hour. That stuff costs money. The bills, of course, get sent to me and get paid for by me with help from supportive BOA listeners who make donations. How do you make a donation? How do you help support the site? Simple. You go to Banal of America, click the PayPal button, that'll take you to PayPal, and they'll walk you through the donation process. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA and BOA Audio up and running for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Heading towards the close now, just one last thing to do here, and that's preview next week's program. We are fortunate enough to be bringing in a bona fide A-list name in the world of Esoterica today. He's one of the stars of the History Channel's UFO Hunters, noted author and publisher of UFO Magazine, the illustrious Mr. Bill Burns, will be joining BOA Audio for the first installment of a marathon conversation. We talked for close to three hours a couple weeks ago, We're going to be breaking it up in half, so next week will be part one with Bill Burns. Great conversation. I had a lot of fun talking to Bill and really just let him run wild with a lot of his answers. In part one, we're going to have an extended bio background where Bill's going to take us through his evolution in the world of Esoterica, how he discovered the Philip Corso story, how he ended up at the helm of UFO Magazine, how UFO Hunters came about, with lots of side roads explored in between, 
it's really fascinating and some great insight into the behind-the-scenes world of esoterica. Plus, we're going to talk about UFO hunters in the first half, how Bill feels about being the center of the advertising campaign, how much network input he gets, and how he answers the critics who say that UFO hunters is not real ufology. We're going to deal with all that in part one with Bill Burns of UFO Hunters. And on that note, we have nothing left to say, so I'm going to wrap it up here. Thank you for your patience last week with the voice situation. Luckily, it seems to have passed. We'll be coming at you for the next six weeks at least here with more Banal of America audio. Until next time, thank you so much for listening, folks. This is Tim Banal, signing off.